It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. Welcome to The Lamppost in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamppost in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel, and joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. Hey everyone, welcome to Season 3, Episode 3, Spotlight on the Classics, Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that here at the Lamppost in the Woods, we love Jane Austen and we love Pride and Prejudice. Or do we, actually? There was some... um some pretty intense comments that were going on on our our outline a little bit earlier for preparation for this episode. So we'll see where the discussion will take us, dear listeners. But we are super excited. We've talked about Pride and Prejudice before. We've talked about different characters. We talked about Mr. Benefit. We talked about Mr. Bennett in our father's episode. We talked about Mrs. Bennett in our mother's episode. We've talked about Darcy and Elizabeth in our, I think, Beauty and the Beast episode. So we've talked about these characters. We've talked about the book. But now we are finally going to deep dive into Jane Austen's 1813 classic Pride and Prejudice. And as usual, we say this always at the beginning of our episodes, but this is your official spoiler warning. But I mean, seriously, at this point, if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, if you haven't seen any of the many versions of it, I I don't know what you're doing in life. So Go read the book, go listen to the audiobook, go watch one of the movies, and then come back and listen to this episode. So we are going to dive right in. And to start us off, I'm going to pass things over to Jen, who's going to give us a little bit of history of Jane Austen herself. All right. So Jane Austen, one of the first things that I came across, which I think has inspired a lot of her novels, is the fact that she is one of eight children, which was, you know, common during that time. And she was one of two daughters and her sister, Cassandra, she was very good friends with. So I think we see those themes a lot throughout her writing of sisterly bond and friendship. And when she was young, she she had a bunch of notebooks and journals and she would fill them with stories and poems. And it was actually in her teen years that she first penned Love and Friendship, which would later be published as the novella Lady Susan after her death. So I guess it goes to show you should never throw away the stories you write when you're a kid. You know, you <laughs> right. never know who might discover them and and then they become published. So uh, growing up, her father had a really great library and just always encouraged his kids to read. Once again, the influence of parents on our reading lives. And then after the age of 27, her father retired and then unexpectedly passed away. And so Mrs. Austin and her two daughters had to rely on the support of her sons. And moving in with her brother, Edward, he then offered them a cottage at a nearby property known as Chawton Cottage. So for those who are really Jane Austen fans, this story may sound like a little similar, right? Hmm. Sounds kind of like her first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. And during her life, 
Jane would go on to write more novels, and she ended up publishing four novels during her life, and then two more were published after her death, along with the unfinished novel Sanditon. And while Jane Austen never married, she had been proposed to, but the day after declined the offer. And so it's safe to say, like our heroine Elizabeth Bennet, Jane Austen would not marry without love. (laughs) And in a letter in 1814 to her niece, she had written, nothing can be compared to the misery of being bound without love. If his deficiencies of manner strike you more than all his good qualities, give him up at once. So she was an inspiration for others. And especially in a time and age where a lot of women didn't get that opportunity to marry without love. At age 40, unfortunately, she was taken ill by a mysterious illness, which would later be identified by Sir Zachary Cope in 1964 as Addison's disease. And she died at the age of 41. So pretty sad that she died that young, but the legacy that she left behind as one of the most acclaimed authors in history. So now that we got a little history of Jane Austen, I'm going to give a little history of Pride and Prejudice. But before I do... I'm going to pose a trivia question to both to our audience as well as my fellow podcasters today. (laughs) Does anyone know what the first edition of Pride and Prejudice was called? I do, but maybe see if the boys know. The guys know. I want (laughs) to see if the guys know. (laughs) No idea. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Ben, any guesses? I've heard it. I've heard it before, but I can't remember. There and back again. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Honestly, they, there's a lot of visiting from houses to houses, so they probably could call it there and back again. <laughs> That's hilarious. There and back right. again and again and again yeah. and again. <laughs> That's All right, Dinah. It is first impressions. That's yes. right. That's, yep. Okay. Which is I'll also a great that. title. Yeah. Great title. It is a good title, and I think you know kind of plays into this theme so yes her you think first is a good title i think you so. like that first I think, impression I, I think it first goes into it, it's what a lot of, of a lot of the book is a whole bunch of first impressions it's i, I agree that it's like it fits the theme but does it feel class like that doesn't that doesn't resonate through time yeah, it's a bit first it's a bit uh, it's a bit bland well who yeah. knows i mean pride and prejudice is definitely a better title Pet- yeah. much better yeah. Yeah. much yeah. better yeah. title yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, we'll so now know. that we got, got a little trivia <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> um, so Jane Austen actually was 20 years old when she first worked on and completed the first draft of Pride and Prejudice, which, as we talked about, was called First Impressions. And it was under this name that her father, George Austen, who was a huge supporter of her writing, sent a letter to a London bookseller, Thomas Cadell, but he refused to publish her work. <gasps> so six years would pass before she published this book. Um, And in the in-between of this book being published, Jane had started working on another novel, which I kind of alluded to, which was Sense and Sensibility. And in 1811, Sense and Sensibility was published by Thomas Egerton. And around the same time, Jane decided to revisit First Impressions and edit the book a bit, then naming it Pride and Prejudice. And part of the reason Jane Austen had to rename the book was because there was another book in 1800 that had been published by Margaret Holford entitled First Impressions. First Impressions. That's crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah. So that's the reason why she changed the name was because someone else had published it. So interesting. Apparently during that time, common, common theme going on. And with some success of Austin's Sense and Sensibility, Egerton then decided to take the risk and publish Pride and Prejudice as well. And so on January 29th, 1813, the book made its first appearance in the world and ever since has sold over 20 million copies, making it one of the most popular novels of all time. Wow. I love it. Awesome. That's great. Good little history there. And it's crazy to me to think the fact that Jane Austen died so young because you wonder Mm -hmm. what else would she have been able to accomplish? Because if you think of someone like we were talking about Agatha Christie before we recorded and she wrote books up into her, I believe like her seventies, but I don't think her eighties, but up until her seventies, she was writing books. And so it's just interesting to know like what, what would our girl Jane have done? You know, interesting, Mm -hmm. crazy. All right. So, um, we are going to go ahead and get into our discussion, but so we we had a little history of Jane Austen. I'm going to do one other little history lesson before we, before we dive into everything here. Um, Yes. We've got to reclassify the podcast. I think it's a history podcast, but sometimes, (laughs) you know, um, because this book was written at the time, they use terms and legal terms and things that probably would have been second nature to the people reading, but because we're reading 200 years later, we wouldn't have understood it. Whereas, if you were to read like a historical fiction book about the time, they would have explained stuff, but it was second nature to the people um, in Jane Austen's audience. And so I'm going to talk just real quick about uh, entails. If you know from reading Pride and Prejudice, a big crux of the book is the fact that, you know, there's these five marriageable daughters and they don't have money because their father's estate is entailed on their crazy, creepy cousin, Mr. Collins, right? So I'm going to talk briefly (laughs) about what an entail is and what that would have meant um, for for people during Jane Austen's time and for the Bennets. Um, and I want to disclose or give a disclosure to that. Most of this information that I, that I'm going through is found from a YouTube channel. Ellie Dashwood is this gal's name. And she does a lot of stuff about like Jane Austen and Regency history and, and literature. So I recommend it if you like, if you like that type of stuff. So at the very base of it, an intel was basically just a settlement of the inheritance or property over a number of generations so that it remains within the family or another group. So if there wouldn't have been an entail, if Mr. Bennett's estate had not been entailed on Mr. Collins, then it would have been split equally between the five daughters. But that obviously would break up the estate, right? You can't have just like one fifth of an estate. So essentially it would have been broken up and they could do what they wanted to with the pieces or they could have sold it. Um, And so entails were placed so this type of stuff couldn't happen. And the spirit of this wasn't necessarily just to deprive daughters, but was specifically so the estate in question could be protected. So it couldn't be broken up, couldn't couldn't be broken up, couldn't be piecemealed out. And then also so like, you know, the silly young Lord of the manor couldn't just like gamble it away at cards. So they had these different, um, you know, protections in place that the estate could stay together and wouldn't, couldn't be, you know, sold off or piecemealed off. And so really it was done to protect the estate. And so essentially what Mr. Bennett was, is he was like a tenant for life is what they call him or more like a steward of the estate. So he couldn't sell it. He couldn't sell pieces of it. He couldn't break it up in pieces and he couldn't decide who would inherit it next. Like he couldn't say, Lizzie, you know, you're my favorite daughter. So I'm going to have the estate go to just you. And then you decide how to take care of your sisters. No, with the law of primogeniture stuff went to the the closest male relative. So that's why the estate would have gone to, to Mr. Collins. And you can, if we're looking at, at at this, you can think of it almost like in Downton Abbey, right? Where you have the three Crawley sisters and the big estate was 
entailed basically on their cousin, Matthew Crawley. And so again, they couldn't, this date wasn't just to be broken up between the three daughters. It was all on that other cousin. And it was on to him, on him really to be able to, to take care of the sisters or whatever it would be. And the really interesting thing about entails is that a lot of times or not a lot of times, all the time they were actually set up by the family themselves. So it wasn't like the legal system set up the entail and said, okay, Mr. Bennett, you have to entail this estate on a cousin. Someone in the family would have set that up. So we don't know for sure if it was Mr. Bennett, if it was his dad, but someone in the family would have set up the entail so that the estate would have stayed together um, and it wouldn't have gone, you know, it wouldn't have been broken up and gone to the daughter. So we don't really know. Um, and the interesting thing is that this didn't always happen. Because if you look at Lady Catherine's daughter, Anne de Berg, she was the inheritor of the estate. So it wasn't like this was an automatic thing that, you know, the estate was going to go to the nearest male relative, but it's something that would have been set up by the family. And so that's why you have all this family and the, the, the sisters in this, um, in this really hard position because the estate was entailed and because their dad, which we'll talk about later, didn't save money for them to have a dowry. They didn't really have money to take care of them if the estate was going to be um, entailed away. So that's a little bit on entails. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes some type of sense to you guys, but and hopefully it gives us like a way to, to start our discussion. I have a question about that. So I was never, I've never been clear about it. All the times I've read the the book and watched some of the stuff, mm -hmm. like the, the version is that, um, so when it's entailed, it's entailed to the nearest male relative. Yes. If one of the daughters get married, does it go to them? No. No, it would it would have. See, that's what I was never clear. See, that, 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 no. That's what I thought the whole time was that like was that like that's what they had to get married is so like they could still keep it in the family. So it automatically goes to Mr. Collins, anyways. Yes. Even though technically. Like he has a different last name, doesn't he? Because like, he's pretty far away. Yeah, but he's still a male like, relative. As far as relative. Yeah. 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 The reason okay. why they push one of the daughters to marry him is because they're going to be set up with a secure with security. Yeah, they know for sure. And there exactly. is income that comes through that. And so that's why the mother, you know, Mrs. Bennett is really trying to encourage one of the daughters to marry yes. Mr. Collins. Because at least they knew that it would have been, for the future. yes, they would have knew, they would have yeah. known that that would be safe because like, they didn't know if other rich men were going to come along. Because the thing to keep in mm -hmm. mind too, is that the Bennett's were not necessarily poor. They're in the exact same social class as Mr. Darcy and the Bingley's were. The difference is that Darcy was just so much more wealthy than the Bennett's. And the thing that, that hurt yeah. the Bennett sisters is that they didn't have good dowries. And the novel goes into that a little bit. And the fact that Mr. Bennett just didn't really save money for them, didn't manage the estate well. Because if he would have, because it was a, their, their estate long run was like a decent sized estate. So if he would have prepared for them a little more, then they would have gotten good dowries. But one figure that I read, and this is that, that girl, Ellie Dashwood in her videos said that based on the dowry that the daughters would have had, because what they did is I, I guess you, like they, they would have to have li lived on the interest of it or whatever. But if they would have had, if they wouldn't have married, like if Lizzie would not have married Darcy, if Jane would not have married Bingley, and they just would have had their dowry to live on once their dad died, it would have been the equivalent of like the pay that a farm laborer had. Which is just incredible, you know? And you see that happening yeah. in, in some of Jane Austen's. I don't want to get on Can't too much. Can't have that, can we? No. But I mean, think about like, what a farm <laughs> that's what these that. girls would have had to live on, you know? So it really was. So Mrs. Bennett's like fears about them. Those farm married. laborers are barely above animals living in the no, no, think about, in the no. dirt and the <laughs> No, no, but you you laugh, but seriously, that's what they would have had to live on. These girls who are used to genteel they would have had like the the the, the money of like a farm laborer, which would have been 
obviously sort of some so different than what they're than what they're used to but um so anyways so that's a little bit about entails and that at least sets the stage for what we're going to to talk about um we good on entails do we need to go into that anymore all right no that's enough of that so we got some (laughs) history hopefully we did a decent job of going through it but let's go ahead and let's start our analysis of this book so what i want to do to start us off here just as an initial question is what are our initial reactions to this book it's probably not i don't think it's the first time any of us have have read it but what did we think about first when we read this book what was the first thing that popped out to us or maybe what was an overarching theme that popped out to you as you were reading it and anyone on the team can can take this one i think evan has some initial thoughts don't you (laughs) evan always has thoughts You guys are acting like I don't like this is a book that I don't like. This is not anywhere near uh, your notes to me. Clearly said. Yeah, I know. Do we need clearly to said <laughs> you did not like this book. Do we no, need to that's not true. That's not true. It doesn't say is this that it, or below crime and punishment, Evan. I just oh no, no. This is a way better book than crime and punishment. And I think okay, I think there that's we go. The thing. Okay. I think the representation. I think the my issue with crime and punishment, as we know, was essentially Russian dialogue. At least we have some like, what we have here is like keen English dialogue that is, can be quippy. It can be, it's, it's the equivalent of like, I don't like a good television show where it's, it's back and forth. It's very strong personalities. Um, So for you guys to characterize me and, you know, assassinate my character on what I feel about this book, like, I don't know. You did write in the the comments, Evan, and I quote, (laughs) Yes. March 14th, 8.16 a.m. Pacific time. I don't really like this book very much. Like what? What did that mean? Yeah. But uh, the qual- the qualifying statements is that I I think I think that the writing is really good. I think the the dialogue is quippy, and I think as far as a a dramatic book goes of the relationships of people, I think it does all of that really well. Mm-hmm. I just do not have a strong preference towards heavy heavy dialogue driven books. Like I want in my own personal reading, I enjoy, I enjoyed very interesting environments and locales. And this all takes place on the countryside and a little bit, you know, in, in the city. And it's just not parlors basically. (laughs) Right. And so it doesn't, it doesn't like spark joy. (laughs) Fair enough. Right. (laughs) So throw that Marie Kondo. It does not spark joy. Um, So, but that's not to say that I don't enjoy, like, I I think the strong, the strong part of this is that Jane Austen does an incredible job of writing interesting characters with interesting dialogue. Sometimes you have Mm -hmm. one without the other and this book has both. It just doesn't have a incredibly appealing um, like I said, locale to me where I'm like, this carries through it. That doesn't mean it's not a classic. That doesn't mean right. I don't enjoy it somewhat. It's just not like, it's not my thing. You sure. know, Fair it's enough. not my thing. It is a lot of dialogue. And it's interesting. You mentioned that about like the locale, Evan, because one thing I noticed between some of the different film adaptations is a lot of people love the 1995 version with Colin Firth, people ooh and awe about that one. But a lot of it takes place mm-hmm 
in the homes and in the parlors and all that. Mm -hmm. And then you look at that juxtaposed to the 2005 version with Keira Knightley that takes a lot of those scenes outside and has just, I mean, the countryside of that film is just beautiful. And the, the locale and the yeah. film, like like the, the filming location is just beautiful. And I, I'm just curious if you think that, because I don't know if you've seen that movie, if it, if putting those scenes out in some of those locations changes your thoughts about it at all. Well, and so that's, I think that's the difference in um, like screenplays and actual writers. Yeah. Is that some writers are really excellent at world building and making you uh, kind of experience um, what they're experiencing in those, in those beautiful locations. I think the representation, her focus is never really on, the actual location so much. It's kind of just like you're talking about like historical context. Like people understand the class of these people. They understand the chateaus or the, 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 you know, the, the places that these are taking place in. And so I think they're, I think that was just kind of expected. So you didn't really really have to world build because they understood how the upper crust were living. Um, so that's a no fault to Jane Austen. It's just sure. obviously her, her strength is her strength is dialogue and complex characters, sure. um, which are very strong. It's so strong. That's what makes this book so valuable in that, you know, I think you could it'd be interesting to see like a really modern or even like a futuristic take on this at some point. We do not need where, a futuristic take on pride and prejudice, Evan. <laughs> what I'm saying is the story <laughs> transcends its location and you could, you could post this pretty much anywhere, um, you know, on the sands of Tatooine and it would still work if, if that, you I mean, know. I agree with you on that. I think that this book does transcend culture. It does transcend your time. I mean, well, if you think about, okay, here's a perfect example the Bollywood movie Bride and Prejudice that basically takes Pride and Prejudice and puts it in modern times and it's a big Bollywood movie and it totally fits. It's a very similar story. That sounds awesome. But it just, it, it, I feel like you would, you would actually probably like it, Evan. <laughs> um, so yes, I, and I'm, and I'm sure there's been tons of, uh, I don't know, modern versions of it, but that was just the, the first one that that popped into my head. But is this is, And is this book, like, obviously I'll let you guys can is this like considered scandalous? Like a lot of the stuff they're talking about for the time, it covers a ton of stuff where you're like, man, this is, this is wild for, yeah, for, sure. for the experience wild for. And so I'm curious, like there's to me in looking at the overall context of this book, it doesn't feel like there's a lot that was written like this. This really feels like it defined a genre and it kicked off um, this kind of like really, in-depth dramatic and scandalous type of literature that (laughs) I, I, that's just how it feels to me. I don't feel, I don't know if there's this, anything else really uh, fills that space during this time. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just funny that we're talking about Jane Austen as scandalous, but I mean, the stuff she was talking about, those were, those are really big. Yeah. There were big issues, right. And things that were, that were serious and all that. So what else Uh, we heard from, from Evan, Ben, Jen, what are some of your initial, just your initial thoughts or your, your main themes? Well, I would say for me, probably one of the number one things that really struck me in this time reading it was just the fact that for a lot of women during that time, the importance of getting married so that they would be able to live and have security. And, you know, when I first watched the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie. I think I was 12. 
So I really did not understand that, you know. Um, and even when I was when I first read this book, I feel like reading it even older, or being like in my late twenties, even be like I'm like Charlotte was 27. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> she was so worried, you know. So yeah. I would have been in, in her shoes yeah. and have to marry. And so you just I don't know, for me, reading it through that way as a woman who is still single and older, like I just thought, man, like you might be in a position where you would have to marry without love in order to secure yourself for the future. And so to me, that's what really, really stood out. And I think also because after we read Pride and Prejudice, Dinah and I read another book called The Other Club. Yeah, for our own book club called The Other Bennett Sister, and it focused on Mary Bennett. Mm -hmm. And basically the premise in the book is that Mr. Bennett passes away shortly after both both Lizzie and Jane get married. And so and then all the other sisters, they get married, too, except for Mary Bennett. Um, And because of that, she then is basically forced to figure out her future. And it just made me think, oh, my goodness, this is why throughout the book, Mrs. Bennett is so focused on getting her girls married. Mm -hmm. And even that line in the the 2005 movie where Lizzie is asking her mother, like, why are you so concerned about us getting married? And and Mrs. Bennett just basically responds and says, Lizzie, when you have five daughters, tell me what would occupy your mind. Yes, and I she's remember doing, that line too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what she's doing is really, she's doing it to make sure that they have a future. Yeah. And that just really stood out to me and also True. made me very grateful to yeah. be living in the 21st yeah. century, huh. you know? Fair so enough. those were my initial thoughts rereading this book. I want to speak to the, the point that Evan made and Dino was talking about a little bit uh, that this book seems like it transcends the genre and the time period and can uh, it could fit just about anywhere because I felt the same thing and reading it this time after we've done all of our podcasts about like fairy tales and archetypes and dragon slayers and all that stuff like like I was reading reading this book what jumped out to me is that this I think this book is like the like the archetypal literature for uh, like romance yeah, and romance stories and romance novels and today's um, romantic comedies and, and like even like CW type shows and things like that uh, along with Shakespeare and all his yeah. stuff too. But it, it, it like, like if, if you, if you, when you read the book, it's, it literally has, it has all of the different like archetypal characters or all the different like thematic characters you see in that. Even the two central one, it's like the two people who everybody can like thinks like each other or like yeah. they're perfect for each other, but they can't tell. Yeah. You know, there's there's the mother who just who just wants to get all her daughters married. There's a father who doesn't care. There's the one sister or the one girl who's just like a crazy kind of floozy. There's the one girl like Mary who's like, oh, love is whatever and poo-poos it. There's the girl like Jane who's beautiful but like yeah. doesn't do anything else. There's there's the Bingley guy who can't tell when a girl likes him. <laughs> there's the best uh, friend. There's the pompous Charlie, guy. The there's the friend. best friend. Yeah. There's the mean yeah, girl. Yeah, you know. And <laughs> exactly. There's, there's the jealous girl who's trying yeah. to like make the – yeah. So like all of the archetypes are here in uh, this book. And, yeah. and I, I mean I haven't read tons and tons of this type of literature. Perhaps there's earlier ones. But I think this is probably, if not the first one that really did that, it's, I'm sure it's the, 
like the most influential yeah, one right, because right. it's the most, most famous, famous and it's the and it's lasted this long. People are still telling it over and over and over. Exactly. Um, and I think it's telling that even as recent as like the 2005 version with Keira Knightley, like she won like an Academy Award for Best Actress. It got nominated for all these awards. Everybody loved it. Yeah. And like, it's funny because you watch the movie, you don't watch the movie and go, wow, this is like Academy Award yeah. level. <laughs> I, I mean, not today because Academy Awards are weird and all that. Uh, but, yeah. You know, I, I, I I, I don't think you watch it and think like, oh, this is just like groundbreaking. Yeah. It's not. But like people love the story so much. It's told over and over. I think it's because that it's – whereas we have for like our hero stories and like our, our knights in shining armor yeah. and our action movies, you have like these ancient mythological – these Greek myths and stuff and all that. That's the archetypal – this is kind of archetypal – I think archetypal literature for like uh, like romance stories because you don't, you don't have like people like dating – much before mm-hmm. this period, right? I mean, mm-hmm. dating, this is kind of like where it's starting and being developed. So that's what struck me first uh, as far as like the enduring quality of this yeah, book. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and it's interesting that you mentioned even about like the, the Nine and Shining Armor type thing, because this is something we, we, we touched on. But even in Pride and Prejudice, I would say you see that trope, if you will, because the way Darcy comes in and he's very like quiet about it, like he doesn't want anyone to know, but how he comes in and just completely saves the day and really rescues the entire family, mm-hmm. makes sure that Wicca marries Lydia, pays off all the debts, does all that stuff, you know? So I just, yeah, I just love it how it, like it's, in, it's influencing things that are coming after, but yeah, it's still pulling from things that came before. So I just love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's like a, it's building on what came before. Yeah, totally. And yeah. On that note, I, I what I also noticed is that I can't remember if I mentioned this when we talked about in these in past episodes, but we've talked about like the two different heroes' journeys, yes, yes, yes. kind of the quote unquote masculine hero's journey, slaying the dragon, and the the feminine one taming the beast. Yes, this is a this is a great example of both of them in the same story. Yes, yeah. Because Darcy, he does he slays the dragon, the whether it's the dragon of poverty, the dragon of scandal, whatever. Yeah. He goes and he's heroic and he rises to the challenge and he and he tells us he does it for Elizabeth. He right. doesn't mm-hmm. do it which I you may you may think that you, kind of like, is like you know that <laughs> kind of like lessens it, but it doesn't. That that's the kind of guy he yeah. he is and he does he goes and slays the dragon, he rescues him, but at the same time Elizabeth tames the beast right in this sense that darcy kind of he 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 isn't like the man he should be right and he is he's proud and he's prejudiced and he's 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 very kind of inward looking self-fulfilling worried about his issues and his problems he's not somebody that that a woman like her would want to be with but because of his interaction with her he becomes that sort of person and even though he's we hear we do hear that he's a good guy like he really rises to the occasion and she 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 tames the beast in this sense and takes his good qualities that he has, brings him to the surface and turns him into um, the man he's supposed to be. So I think this is a great example. Up there with the Empire Strikes Back of taming the beast and slaying yes, the dragon. Yes, right. The, 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 those two right there. Right. Both of them right there in the same story. No, it's good. And I'm glad you bring that up because when you mentioned that at our, la- our last episode when we talked about it, I think that is because you said something about how when there's both in the same story, that's what make it a really that's what makes it a really fulfilling love story. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think maybe that's not realizing that, 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 that was part of it. I, I think that that's one reason why it makes, why it makes that story, the story of Pride and Prejudice so enduring and just so um, like you're drawn to it, you know, and it's why it's so romantic and people love the the romance. Um, and I love to, I mean, 
we talked a little bit about the beginning, about the title, right? Evan said that Pride and Prejudice is a much better title than First Impressions, which, you know, I think First Impressions works, but but I think I tend to agree because you do see in The Taming of the Beast, if we're using that metaphor, you do see some change. If we're going with like the idea that Darcy, that pride in the, in the title represents Darcy, like he was pretty prideful. Like if you look, his first proposal to Elizabeth is so oh rude. Gosh. Like it's so mean. <laughs> like it's horrible. Like he, he really insults her. He's, he's really bad, you know? And she like gives it to him and, and, you know, tells him, tells him, tells him what she thinks and all that. And you do see him change. And he's like taking the things that she's saying into account. And you do see this transformation where he started off as very prideful, whether it's egotistical, or whatever, and then becoming a little more humble, getting away from some of that pride. So I like that you can see like a change and a transformation because anytime we have any book, like all the good ones, there's some change and there's a transformation. And it's not a good book if like the character starts off at the beginning and they don't learn anything towards the end and they're just the same person and they're perfect, right? Because Darcy obviously wasn't perfect. And then Lizzie wasn't either, right? With all of her prejudices and all of the, you know, the misconceptions that she had about Darcy and just about everyone. So I like the fact that we see an example of the two of them learning and becoming better people. Because that's what I think all the best books do, you know? Because another thing that I was thinking of too, and it, it struck me, I never really thought about it quite this way. But if we're looking at themes in the book, is just truth or the lack of truth, and all of like the misconceptions that come along with that. Jen read at the beginning of the episode, the very first line, it is a truth universally acknowledged. And it's just funny that Austin starts off with such a broad line as that, when the entire book is about truths and lack of truths, the truths about, truth about Darcy, the truth about Wickham, mm-hmm. even little things like, you know, um, the truth about Jane and Bingley and their relationship, and Darcy and Caroline and the sisters trying to get Bingley to not like Jane, Jane not knowing or not thinking that Bingley loves her and Bingley not thinking that Jane loves him. All of just these misconceptions and how truth or not seeing all of the truth plays such an integral role in the book. You know, like that was a really big Mm -hmm. thing for me this time. I think both of them are pride and prejudice. Yeah. I think you're meant to think at the beginning of the book that Darcy's pride and prejudice. He's very proud. He's prejudiced. He is prejudiced against people below him or different classes yeah. or certain types of people. But then as it goes on, then you're sp- like, you start to see, well, Liz- Lizzie is also very proud and That's she's true. also prejudiced just in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. She's prejudiced against, I don't know, like richer people or people who, who uh, have a certain level of quality or class. Or, or against not acting Darcy because he said she wasn't handsome enough to dance with. <laughs> yeah. Or th- yeah, just Darcy. <laughs> like, like she, she was very, and she is proud herself, but it's not in her money. It's in like her, she loves to like people watch and like make comments about people yeah. and like, you know, all that stuff. She's very proud and prejudiced, but then they both sort of have the, the, the growth part. I don't think it's just right. Darcy. I think she, like you said, she also grows as well. And so in the end, they've both kind of like, that's why they're perfect for each other. Cause they're both proud and prejudiced. And so they come together nicely and they grow together. Right. Right. Yeah. I I agree. No, I was just going to say one thing that I was thinking and reading this book again, too, is Lizzie has to be softened over time, too. And I think it's not just through Darcy, but it's also through her relationship and friendship with other people. And I think part of that is also her friendship with Charlotte, because obviously when we first see that Charlotte, you know, ends up deciding after Lizzie refuses Mr. Collins, then Charlotte goes on to marry him. Mm -hmm. Lizzie's reaction is just, what 
oh yeah, she is judging hardcore. She's saying, are you out of your mind? Are you sick? What is going on? You know? And, but as you see, as the story progresses, you know, she goes and visits Charlotte. And I think that even that visit begins to soften her and she allows to see what the goods of has come from this and also seeing another side to marriage, why Charlotte made the decision she did. And I think which honestly prepares her for even once she receives a letter from Darcy, which is shortly after that visit too, and explaining why he has done the things that he has done and also revealing more of his character, which, you know, you wish he had done from the forefront, but the trope, which we see in a lot of stories is, nope, it's never going to be that because honor is honor and it it comes through time. Right. But I think it's, it's other people around her that help her to see the truth. And that's why friendship is so important too, you know, to allow to allow her to see the full story and allow us to see what isn't true. Like with Wickham. Well, exactly. Um, Cause she's so prejudiced on the other side with Wickham. I'm like, Lizzie Mm -hmm. girl, get a grip. It's like she yeah. lets herself get flattered. <laughs> no, seriously. And it's like she, well, and at one point she yes. even says yeah. like, and she's like talking to Jane and Jane's like, oh, well, like, are you sure about that? And Lizzie legit says there was truth in his looks. Talking about Wickham. Yes. Like, are, are you kidding me, Lizzie? Are you kidding me? You're smarter than okay. this. You, you know what I was thinking too <laughs> in reading that? I was thinking, wow, deception's really handsome, isn't it? Oh, and yeah. And so just even thinking of the verse Proverbs 31, which is always referred to, you know, with women is, well, this can also apply in this case, charm is deceptive and beauty or handsome Mm -hmm. looks is fleeting, right? So it applies, applies in Wikipedia. And I, I think she's also pushing against some ideas back then, or, or at least ideas that are, that are often present in like, uh, like a literature of that time is that you can, you can tell what somebody is by just looking at them or books are always written where certain types of people look certain ways. And I think she is going to that pushing, even just in a literary sense, push against that. He's the beautiful, charming, handsome, whatever Mm -hmm. guy. And he turns out to be the cat. Yeah. Yeah. And she, like, I was looking up some of the the stuff and she comes, because the verse that that you mentioned, Jen, made me think of it because she says when she finally realizes all this stuff about Wickham, the novel says that she Mm -hmm. realizes that Wickham had charm, but no goodness. And she didn't, you know, realize yeah. any of that beforehand. And it just, it made me think of what you, what you just said, that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. And then later she, when she's getting all this re- revelation, she even calls him, she sees that he was an angel of light. That's what she calls Wickham. I'm like, um, isn't that what they call the wow. devil? Isn't that what they call <laughs> oh Lucifer? But it just shows you that, yes, she was like, so she was, yeah, she either charmed or she had prejudice. It just is really interesting because mm-hmm. she was prejudiced against Darcy because he said something like, which, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a nice thing. He basically said she wasn't pretty enough to dance with. So fair enough, she got offended. But then Wickham shows her a little bit of attention and talks smack about Darcy. And she's so prejudiced on the other side. So prejudiced on the other side. And then it's only sweet little innocent Jane. Jane is the only... Okay, mm-hmm. think about this, you guys. Through the book, Jane is the only one that thinks there might be more to the story. It says that everyone was so ready to think evil of Darcy. And Jane was the only one that was like, yeah. like are you? are you sure like there might be something else here it's true it's true well you know what too with jane though because she's not only with darcy she also thought the same with caroline Bingley as well Mm. and you see how she will see she tries to see all the sides of the story and also i think jane is someone who sees the best in others yeah which is why she 
you know, chooses to believe the best about other people too. And yeah. so she doesn't see things like Lizzie's. I think Lizzie see things, sees things black and white. Yeah. Whereas Jane, on the other hand, is like, I think there's more to the story, you know? Right. And so I think once again. Except for when it comes to Bingley. Yeah. Yes, Except for when it comes so, to Bingley. She like okay. can't tell that he likes her at all. Okay. She's just like, oh, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. I'm like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> But what I think, okay, what I think a part of it is too is with her temperament is she's yeah. also self-protecting herself mm-hmm. and her emotions from allowing herself to feel anything because she doesn't want to be disappointed and right. because of what everyone else is saying around her. And so I think she's doing it as almost like this self-preservation mode. Totally. Um, it's true. You know, just trying to convince herself when other people, like especially when Lizzie says, no, he likes you. Like he yeah. likes you. And so she's trying to convince herself no, it's fine. Like, yeah, exactly. I barely saw him passing in London. Right. Yeah. You know? You're <laughs> well, like, oh, she's just trying to convince herself. <laughs> that's a theme that runs throughout the entire book again. Right. About like, yeah. the, again, I guess the first impressions thing, but not just the first impressions, but, but like thinking somebody is one thing, Yeah. but mm-hmm. then they're not, or, or people pretending yeah. they're not like, one of my favorite lines, the lines in the book is when Darcy says disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. Mm. which I can, I can, mm. I can, that resonates with me. Cause I can live with that. And he's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty cutthroat about it. He's not going to be nice or whatever with it, but like, I get it. Disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. And that happens throughout, mm-hmm. like throughout the entire book, you know, people are always trying to put on a different face than what they are. Yeah. Yeah. And Darcy's the only person who's like, I'm, I don't like any of this because everybody's trying to act like yeah. they're something they're not. And I think Lizzie's the only person who really comes through. Like she's, more blunt and she's more even though she her 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 uh her language is very like it's very intricate and like you have to read between the lines with her she's straightforward and she is what she appears to be even though she's wrong sometimes she is what she appears to be so that's why he's into her yeah um but then i think it's i think it's i think it's lizzie's aunt who the aunt and the uncle are pretty oh they're great characters yeah the gardeners yeah they're awesome great i think when they're talking about wickham and darcy i think the aunt her aunt says one has got all the goodness and the other all the appearance of it Mm. Which I think that could be a good summarizing quote of the book, too. Yeah, it's true. People who, okay, like Mr. Collins, he may have all the appearance on the out, just on the very surface of being like this good type of person, but you just poke it very softly and everything gushes out that he's like, I think he's, I think he's the worst person in the book. He's the worst. Okay, let's talk talk about Mr. Collins for a bit because if we're looking at this book as a, like a, um, a way to, you know, as a, morality tale whatever we're looking at is as a way to teach us things a way that you can learn something is not always seeing a good example of something right but seeing a bad example so mr Collins, i put in right. my note how not to act or how not to be a christian or how not to be a preacher 101 i mean he's like the, he's probably like the the best bad preacher or bad clergyman i think in all of english literature like at least one of the most famous like the bad versions of a preacher because if you think about him Having all of the, if you're talking about like pride or whatever, you can look at someone like Darcy and see, oh yes, he has pride. But then Collins has this like sniveling, like I think he even says somewhere like the false, yeah, it's, like, it's slimy, almost like Uriah <laughs> Heep, Uriah Heep in um, David Copperfield. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and like this over the topic obsequiousness, what's that word? How do you say it? I don't know. That's close okay, words are know. hard, words but, are you, hard. but you know the word I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's like that's even worse. Like he. He's let like number one. He never talks about the Bible. The only thing he talks about is flipping Fordyce's mm-hmm. sermons. So not even talking about like the actual Bible, just like 
someone else's and Lady Catherine de Berg. Yeah, exactly. And like acts like that's his patron saint is Lady Catherine de Berg. She straight up is his patron saint. Straight up. Okay, well, that was something I wanted to bring up too was the fact of how much he has to please please her yeah to please lady catherine and it's everything is about her he's like well lady catherine says well lady catherine loves like this about me you know it's it's kind of weird how much he strives to please her and get true on her good side yeah totally talk about like hashtag relatable like we all know that name dropper person yeah. always yeah. drops someone yeah. into conversation yeah. <laughs> you're like okay that doesn't make you any higher on but the like he's... and he's so go ahead no no go ahead ben i was like he's so unchristian and like the the part where i literally wrote down he's the worst is when mr uh, uh I believe Mr. Bennett gets a letter from him after he hears about yes, go ahead. Um, yeah. um, Lady Catherine de Berg. And I don't know if it's in here, but he does say, he at some point he just says, I immediately informed Lady Catherine. Um, but he says, he says, I am truly rejoiced that my cousin Lydia's sad business has been so well hushed up. But I'm only concerned that their living together before their marriage took place should be so generally known. I must not, however, neglect the duties of my station or refrain from declaring my amazement at hearing that you received the young couple into your house as soon as they were married. It was an encouragement to vice. And had I been the rector of Longbourn, I should have very strenuously have opposed it. You ought certainly to forgive them as a Christian, but never to admit them in your sight or allow their names to be mentioned in your hearing. And then Mr. Bennett says, that is his notion of Christian forgiveness. Yes, boom. I was like, "Ah, the the worst. He's the worst. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. So how not to act is with Mr. Collins. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. One of us needs to write that book. No, seriously. Exactly. Yeah, or at least an article about, like, like yeah. a how-to guy, but a how-not-to guy with, with Mr. Collins. Okay, what yeah. do you think, you guys? We have Darcy's horrible, prideful, rude proposal to Lizzie. Which proposal is worth worse? Darcy's first proposal or Collins's proposal to her? I know that's hard. It's a hard uh, one. Collins', is, Collins proposal is pathetic. It's so pathetic. <laughs> I just, like, I was reading it and I was like, every time I read it, I'm just, like, cringing uh, for yeah. a little bit. I'm just cringing so much. <laughs> I don't but know if she again, sat through it as long as she did. I know. That's <laughs> archetype though. Like how many like movies or TV shows yeah. or books you read yeah. and it's like that sort yeah. of super awkward like proposal or asking someone out on a date or where you're just like – it's like you're just cringing from – Yes, yeah. and he doesn't believe her when she says, you know, that she doesn't want to marry him or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, like, yeah. like he thinks he's learned all this like stuff about women and he's like, oh, she's doing this <laughs> and stuff like that. And he's like, no. <laughs> You said, Jen, like, oh, how does she listen to it through it so much? But what? Because I think it says, like, she, he says something like, now before I am run away by my feelings. And he pauses and it says something like, she would have, she should have taken this opportunity to get up. But she was, like, so tickled by the fact that, like, he said he was run away by his feelings that she just, like, could not. (laughs) It's great. Yeah, Yeah, it's next level. Or then at the end where he's, like, like, I think the last thing he says is, like, well, since. You have very little chance of getting another offer so coming your way. I thought maybe. Honestly, <laughs> that's, even, like, that's even eh, more insulting. No, it that's is. more insulting than when Darcy said she's not handsome enough to tempt me. Like, no, it definitely, is. For I sure. think that's more insulting. And it, like the, the unfortunate thing is he's not wrong. He's not really wrong, which is probably what's really hard for yeah. Lizzie. And yeah. so that's what I think. Yeah. Like, 
I've talked enough in some of our other episodes about how I don't think Mr. Bennett is a good dad, but his finest hour in the entire book is that line where he says, your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. Like that, I'm like, slow clap for Mr. Bennett right there. (laughs) That's his best, his best part. His best part. But it's odd because you see, at least I do, like some of these virtues and vices showing up in different characters. You know, we we talked about um, Darcy at the beginning with his pride and Lizzie with her prejudice. But you can see even Mr. Bennett is almost like slothful. Like, I see him as just being like, like slothful and just yeah. not caring, disinterested. Whereas on the other hand, you see someone like Jane who has like, like the virtue of like kindness and goodness. I don't know what, what one word I would use to describe, but you see all these characters showing up with like these different, um, I don't know, different good things or different bad things about him that, that show up as themes. It made me think a couple of times. I'm like, uh, outside of Jane, I'm like, are any of these people good? Like, actually good people? Because, <laughs> like, even, like, Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, like, in the, like, surrounded by this group of other people, I'm like, obviously, they're the, be- like, they're some of the best of the best. But, yeah. like, if they were just out in the world, I was like, are they actually good people? Like, would they be good to I know. other people? I'm not sure. <laughs> the gardeners are great. The gardeners are great. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to mention, and I, I think it's good because whereas you get a not great example of a marriage with the Bennets, I feel like you get a good example of it, of what like a, a good marriage would be mm. like with the gardeners. And I think it may even allude to that. Like Lizzie and Jane realized that like their, their parents' marriage wasn't great, but you know, they, they, something about, you know, they liked the gardeners or whatever, but one thing that I wanted to bring up about, about made me think about Mrs. Gardner. And this goes back to the thing about like, you know, people, you know, Lizzie or whoever judges other people, but then does certain things herself. And it's interesting because like one of her biggest things with Darcy, right. Is that he tore Jane and Bingley apart. Well, if you look at it from Darcy's mm. side, he was trying to do the right thing for his friend. He, he saw that like, I mean, like it or not. And Lizzie even started to realize it. The, the parents, the mom, like, they, they really just wanted money. He was afraid they wanted mm-hmm. Bingley for his money, which, I mean, some of them did. And the novel alludes to it, but, like, from what we can get from the book, the Bingleys were new money. Darcy's, the Darcy's were old money. They'd had wealth for all this time. And the Bingleys were a little bit newer to money. And so Bingley probably wouldn't have known how, like, Darcy, I'm sure all his life knew how to get, like, knew how to peg women immediately if they were just after his money. Bingley didn't know that mm. as much. And so Darcy, I can almost see the novel as Darcy really trying to take care of his friend and protect Bingley because Bingley isn't, he's, he's a little bit naive. He's not the sharpest, you know, crayon in the box. So you see him trying to take care of Bingley and be like, ah, eh, you might not want to get, get in with that family. And then a little bit later when like uh, Wickham and Lizzie are doing like the flirty flirt, Mrs. Gardner basically tells Lizzie, Hey, you might want to think about this. I know he's cute. I know you like him, but basically there's no money there. And Lizzie's like, yeah, fair enough. And that's it. And it's like, Lizzie, your aunt told you this and you were fine with it and saw it. But then Darcy does it for his friend and she sees it completely. Mm, now, does Darcy that. know about it? That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. But like, we've all tried to say, I mean, who, who of us wouldn't try to save our friends or someone we, we care about from like, you know, a match or a marriage or a relationship that we don't think would be good for them. Again, does Darcy go about yeah. it in the best way? Yeah, it's hard to blame no. Darcy, I think. No, yeah. but I mean... It's hard to blame... From what he sees from the family, Yeah, mm-hmm. from his point of view, like you said, it's hard to blame him for thinking mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, 
Lizzie does come to realize this. And I did say, you know, when, when she receives that letter, but I think she furthermore realizes it when they tour Pemberley with her aunt and uncle. And she gets, she hears an account of Mr. Darcy from Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper who has known mm. Darcy his entire life, right? She's known him since he was a boy. And I actually, there's this quote that says, this is Mrs. Reynolds speaking. And she says, he is the best landlord and the best master that ever lived. Not like the wild young men nowadays who think of nothing but themselves. Mm. There is not one of his tenants or servants, but what will give him a good name? Some people call him proud, but I am sure I never saw anything of it. To my fancy, it is only because he does not rattle away like other young men. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's when she's really realizing then of of how much pride and prejudice got in the way of her true view of Mr. Darcy. And I think that description, especially when it says not like the wild young men nowadays, you know, where they think yeah. of nothing but themselves. That's Wickham. Exactly. <laughs> in exactly. a definition. You know, and she's having this full realization of, oh my gosh, I've gotten this wrong. Exactly. 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 I'm glad you brought that up, Jen, because that's something I noticed more this time when I read it too, is that Mm -hmm. it seemed a lot more the first few times I read it and watching some of the versions, it seemed a lot more that Lizzie was like, uh, she was kind of in the right and she was the same, but then Darcy like changed and then her feelings changed toward him which i think that does still happen somewhat but this time i noticed a lot more it seemed like she realized that she was wrong Mm -hmm. about him and then she had to change her mind Mm -hmm. you know so i think i think i think in a sense like darcy still changed and she was right to an extent but but it seemed a lot more it seemed a lot more like you weren't sure later in the book if she was going to take him but but this time when i read it i noticed a lot more she's clearly even once she once he proposes and she gets that letter, yeah, from yeah. that point on, she's clearly starting to change exactly. already. Yeah. Well, you what know? she has what she has to do is she has to humble herself. You know, I think even yeah. when she's realizing all this, like which right. is the complete opposite of pride, that she's having to come so from this true. place of humility. And you even see that first interaction between them afterwards. Like she's almost shy, like to be in his presence. Yes, and that, doesn't know how to act. You know, doesn't know how to act because yeah, she's yeah, realizing yeah. the full truth before her eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So good. Because again, I, I just love that it shows both of them going through and changing and going through transformation. And I think you're right, Benjamin. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes you think it at just like a cursory glance. Well, Darcy did all the changing and Lizzie was just perfect. Well, no. <laughs> She she'd had to do a whole lot of changing, too. And I think yeah. it's good that they both had to do changing. I mean, I guess you could read it either way. Like, oh, well, Darcy needed to do all the changing or Lizzie needed to do all the changing. But no, they both needed to. And I think, again, it just goes to, like, the whole redemption thing and this the idea of having a second chance. And they both needed to become better people than what they were, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's a beautiful example of redemption. I have a theory about this book and we've been, we've been, I want to see what you guys think of it. And we've, we've been talking about it kind of like here and there uh, throughout this uh, podcast so far. Um, and I want you guys to poke holes in this because I want to see if this is right. Now. In, in a general sense, it seems to me like Pride and Prejudice is the first novel that has characters, especially a, a protagonist, two protagonists 
who grow from the beginning of the novel to the end. Not just change, but they're truly dynamic in that they start one way and they grow and they mature and they're they're still the same characters, but they're different at the end. Yeah. And this is my theory because I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, when I, it kind of popped into my head because I was thinking like if you read our fairy tales that we have, we talked about, we've talked about ancient myths, all that stuff. In those things, the, the characters in it are very archetypal. Yeah. And they're almost like forces of nature. They may change in some ways, but most of the time they're the same at the end that they mm-hmm. were at the beginning. And they're, they're mm-hmm. like the archetype of something and they True. don't change. Um, you look through and, and so I was trying to go back and look and see what are, what are like the great change stories, like mm-hmm. where characters grow and, and, and when were they written? Because the, uh, one of the books that's considered like the first novel. So, so I, I guess, I guess a novel is considered like novels was when people started writing about individual people and about like their inner thoughts and like yeah, their sure. life story and stuff like that. That's a novel. And the book that's, in my studies that I've seen that considered the first novel is Don Quixote because mm-hmm. it was the first real character study of somebody. Mm-hmm. But if you mm-hmm. read that book, it's about, it's about like this weird character, these two weird characters, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. And, and when they got in the world, how do they react to the world and how does the world react to them? You put them in all these situations and see what mm-hmm. they do, but they are the exact same characters at the end that they were at the beginning. They don't. They basically don't change at all, mm-hmm. and that's part of the mm-hmm. ending. Don Quixote. Spoiler alert: He dies <laughs> because he can't adapt to. He can't adapt to the changing time. It's like a tragedy, and that's like Shakespeare's tragedies. Mm-hmm. The reason they're tragic is people don't change. They can't learn. Yeah, they can't true. grow. But well, yeah. but in this book, Darcy and Lizzie both grow, and they learn from their mistakes, and they grow. And I was that's trying to think. True. So the big the big like transformation story that I think of first is A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. Like that's like the most radical change. Yeah. And I thought, okay, Dickens might wreck my theory. And I went and looked him up. He was born the year before Pride Bridges came out. Yeah, so he's just enough after. Whatever he Mm -hmm. got, whatever he got, Jane Austen got there first. Okay, what about about George Eliot with Middlemarch and all that? I just read Silas Marner, same sort of thing. She comes after Right, exactly. Uh, What about like Mark Twain? Huckleberry Finn and his right. change through that whole story. He comes after her. I thought, I was like, what books are my podcast listeners? Where are they going to throw at me and try to poke it? Yeah. I thought about what about Count of Monte Cristo? I'm trying to think of early I haven't read that. Things. I don't know everything about him. But Dumas comes after, yeah. comes after Jane Austen. Right. Right. I, there's two, there's only two exceptions I can think of, but I want to see if you guys have any, have any exceptions. And I'll tell you the only two exceptions I can think of. I want to look more into like the, the, Bildung's Roman, how do you say that? You know, like the coming of age story? Because I feel like just by the very right. definition of that, that's that's a story where you change. But I think a lot of that comes after. Like, I mean, right. I, that, that, that's a, the Bildung's Roman is a very Victorian. Right. Like, uh, mm-hmm. like, like thing. Sure. So which would come after Jane Austen. Well, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. Because I'm trying to think about even Shakespeare. It doesn't seem like, yeah, you don't get a ton of character development and a ton of changing. So... See, that was the one of the few exceptions is possibly Shakespeare. I haven't read all of Shakespeare, but which one? Would and you Shakespeare talk about, was though? enough of a well, well, he's enough of a genius where I don't want to say yeah. I, I want to at least leave the option open that maybe because if you look at his tragedies again, the reason why they're tragedies is, is nobody changes, nobody learns, they stay the same. True. Um, some of his historical ones, similar thing. The only thing I could think of were his comedies. Yeah. People, I think, do change by the end. Not always for the better, though, right. which I guess that's still the same kind of thing. Sure. Um, 
That's the only possibility I can think of as far as Shakespeare. And not to say that that people, writers who don't have these characters that have these dynamic changes, it, not to say that they're not good or they're not in depth, because one of the great stories is like, you know, is to see somebody's descent. You know, how somebody gets somebody who makes a bad choice and they, they won't change, they won't change, and then they get worse and worse, and then there's this tragedy. Um, there's also good stories where you take certain characters who are well-written characters and then you throw them into situations and see how they react. Mm. You know, stuff like that. So it's not – clearly, it's not like there wasn't good stuff written. Yeah. But characters who mature and they grow and they learn from their mistakes. Right, right. I don't know. I think you stumped me because, again, all the ones I'm thinking came after that. Like, I'm thinking of Jane Eyre. I thought of Jane Eyre too. I'm like, wait. Yeah. Right. Jane Eyre. The sisters. Yep. And Donnie even said at the beginning, well, we we, we want a story where our characters change. Only good stories have characters that change and they grow, which is true. Right. Today, and this is why why I think I didn't notice it in Pride and Prejudice, because today every single story aims for that. And you said, well, it's not Mm -hmm. a good story because nobody changes and grows. So it's so ingrained in us now, we don't even think about it. Yeah. But it seems like there was a time when that was not uh, a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Here's the only other ex- example, e- e- exception I could think of, which is the Bible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because I think I think we have to admit there are there there are there are characters in the Bible who definitely change. But it's and that's why it's good. And the Bible <laughs> is is right. And the Bible is incredible enough. I think we could say that that is an exception that doesn't wreck the theory right. because it was in a different sphere and held different. It was so far ahead of its time and all that. Right. right. And so it's, it's stories of, you know, that we believe are true and real people and stuff, but but like, but like as far as literature goes and reading it in that sense, um, we're going to do a Bible episode later, you know, so we can talk more about that. But when people change in the Bible, it's almost always with like a supernatural experience. Mm. There's an angel, Paul's on the road to Damascus and Jesus speaks to him. There's some, there's some sort of like supernatural or, or it's outside circumstances that force somebody to change and be different where it's not really a growth sort of thing. They're forced to be changed by outside circumstances. Yeah. So I don't think it wrecks the theory, but is there anything else that we can think of? The only thing, and you guys may have to read it to tell me because I'm having trouble remember everything about it, but has anyone read Ivanhoe? Because that, I mean, some people say that Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, like, you know, depends on who says whether that was, you know, the first mm. novel or one of the first novels. And it, it's a pretty yeah. epic story. And I'm trying to think if there's any real character change. I know there's like a like a somewhat of a romance where over time two characters kind of fall in love with each other. But I don't know if that's enough to say. No, okay. Actually, I feel like there kind of is one of the one of the bad dudes. I can't remember his name. Because of the love of a woman, you know, he kind of he changes a bit, but like a that, redemption story, a redemption. But I mean, like, but that still could almost be seen as like a super, I don't know, like a super, not really supernatural thing, but that's the only other one I it, can it think seem, of is Ivanhoe. It seems like a lot of the things pre that we can think of for previous seem to be very like outside circumstances or outside influences. Yeah. Like, like, I guess maybe that, I, I don't know. Like I, that's why I wanted to ask you guys about it. Whereas in this one, Darcy and Lizzie both make a conscious choice. Yeah. To change, and it's because of other things that happen, but they recognize that they're wrong and they decide to change. And there's a process they go through to yes, get there. Yes, yes. That seems to be, I, I can't think of anything before this book or before Jane Austen in general. I haven't read her other books. Yeah. But before Jane Austen in general, 
yeah. uh, that this that this exists. The wow. only other two books that I recognize that are like 1700s are like Gulliver's Travels and Robinson Crusoe. And I'm like, I don't think either of those have mm-hmm. like their stories and they're adventurous, but I don't think there's really character development so and much change, in either of yeah. those. See, Crusoe was one of the ones I thought of too, Evan, because that that's one of the books that's also considered one of the first novels yeah. or whatever. Um, it's just not the same and, kind of tone or right. kind of application at all. Crusoe definitely changes. He's a different character at the end of his his, his being stranded there. Because, but but I think but that I think that's because of this outside circumstance that he's forced into this different mold. Yeah. He can't be the same person. He can't be like he can't be this wild like you know hedonistic youth because now he has to yeah. take care of himself and get everything for him. So right. I, not that it I don't know does it it doesn't count. I don't know to no, look at it like that I because he's forced. It's very very different. You know what I'm saying? You're talking about like you're changed by circumstance, like all the war novels that we read, like they're transformed right, yeah, because of enough. their experiences yeah. in right, war, yeah. not that they're like seeing their depravity, to use a little theological term, right? Mm-hmm. And and then right. confront their depravity and say, mm-hmm. I have to be better. I have to show grace. I have to be humble yeah. and begin to um, internalize like virtuous things, right? Yeah. You're changed mm-hmm. by a circumstance and whether or not it, you turn into a good person or a bad person, it's still like a circumstance is forced upon you rather than these people looking internally and saying, I'm wrong. I need yeah. to be better. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think you're, I mean, I, I, that's, it's a pretty good theory. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know really enough about like 1700s literature to <laughs> but I feel like we give you an antithesis. And I feel like we need to give Jane Austen enough credit. And I feel like you probably are. And the fact that that may have been intentional on her part, you can read. I've read articles and listened to podcasts about, you know, Jane Austen's faith and and all mm-hmm. that. And I think a way that you can even, or at least I heard a podcast say a way you can even look at Austen's novels or as Christian fiction of like the 1800s and Jane Austen morality and, and virtue and all of that definitely was on her mind. Um, I haven't studied a ton, a ton about her life, but she was a religious person. Her last request, oh. I think, was for her sister to pray for her soul. She she would write down prayers and in letters and different stuff. So, I mean, she obviously, she did care about things morality-wise. And I think at first face value, you can look and say, oh, well, Jane Austen obviously didn't think much about the church or whatever, because look at her clergyman, Mr. Collins. And I mean, okay, but then you look and you see good examples of clergymen in some of her other books. You have someone like Edward Ferris, who's like a really stand-up guy and all that type of stuff. So, um, but yeah, I think definitely morality was on Jane Austen's mind when she was writing this. And I just, again, I just love how we can see examples of really good characters and good virtues in people. And then you Mm -hmm. see the the more negative and the, and the not as good. But but again, I I, yeah, I just, I really like what you're saying, Benjamin, where I'm going to have to unpack that a little bit more. Another thing I'm wondering, too, is because, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, when she first wrote this, Mm -hmm. she was much younger. And then, what, it was like 13 years went by before she revisited it. So, obviously, hopefully, she matured during those 13 years. So, I wonder even if that influenced the Mm -hmm. second drafts that came afterwards. Because, I'm sorry, I may miss this part, but didn't, uh, did you say something about the fact, didn't she, like, write this? She wrote it like very early or something. It didn't get published. Did you say something about that? And she had to go back through it or something like yeah. that? Yeah. So she was, I believe she was 20 when she first She wrote, wrote it in this. the late 1700s, I think. Like 
It wasn't the first published, but it yeah, may have she been was one 20. of the first written, if not the one first. Around that age. Okay. Yeah, it was her. Well, it was her very first. Yeah, anything that she had written, at, at least in novel form, around twenty, and then thirteen years passed by before she revisited it. So, if you think about that, you're yeah. a very different person at twenty than you are at thirty-three. So, I'm sure even that could have totally. influenced. I mean, it would it would be interesting. I don't even know if it exists if there was a first draft of Pride and Prejudice huh. to yeah. see what changed from the first draft to the final final draft. Right. It's true. The closest thing I could think of that I can get to, to Austin is uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. which is, it, it's still not, a, I think there's a similar flavor, but obviously a different type of story um, of, of, you know, Frankenstein recognizing his hubris and his problems and then trying to go wreck, like, like, rectify what he did wrong but he kind of fails so it's not even it's not even quite what austin it's not still not the same sort of sort of you know uh situation that austin had but that's 1818 so she would have been around the time that jane austen was putting around her book so yeah maybe it was a movement that was happening and that jane austen was kind of like the 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 most famous one the only one that's really come down to us but either way i i I'm sure maybe there's some lit professor out there who's like, yeah, you guys are way behind. We've been talking about this for, for <laughs> 200 years. You know, th- that's possible. But this was uh, – I haven't done that sort of research on it. But it, it this struck me while reading it again um, of that sort of well, quality of the book. And again, yeah. that must be why it's so endear- enduring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I will say what I learned like historically during that time period in 1792, there was a publication – Oh gosh, her name's like Mary Wollen Wollstonecraft. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yes, yes, I've heard. And she wrote the yeah, yeah, wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women, and so she was arguing that women should give an equal rights to men. Which I don't know if there was anything published before that. Yeah, so th- this is around that time when Jane Austen is you know crafting this story. So I'm sure maybe that gave her almost the precedence to write to put some things mm. to paper that maybe other people never would because it wasn't something that would be talked about. I mean, you would probably be looked down upon, but it probably gave her ammo. I don't know, to, yeah. you know, like <laughs> put this put this to paper and and really fight for the fact that you know, the kind of this idea around intellectual independence that women are thinkers as much as men are thinkers too. I think mm-hmm. that's the first time we're seeing that. So because of that, we see that in this story. So Gina, one thing I, I... I just think this is funny. And so I want to mention to you, Jen and Benjamin, especially as writers, but can we appreciate the fact that my girl Jane Austen named the beautiful, perfect character in the book that everyone loves Jane, literally like after (laughs) herself? Like what if you named the hero of your book, Benjamin Ben or Jen, the the heroine of your next novel, who's beautiful and smart and the best, her name is Jennifer. Like, I'm like, okay, Jane Austen, I see you, girl. <laughs> you do you. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. You know? <laughs> it's like another one, another one of her strokes of... <laughs> another one of her strokes of genius, I think, it's kind of on this one, is that uh, she makes the embodiment of the, for lack of a better term, the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. The embodiment of the patriarchy in Pride and Prejudice is not a man. It is, in fact, a woman, yes. Lady Catherine de Bourgh, <laughs> who is, she, like, lurks in the background like this, like, yeah. 
overarching like villain who's behind the whole thing and she's representing all of these rules and regulations and it's this is the way it is it can't be any different yeah and i think it's a stroke of genius that she makes it a woman and not a man so when you read it you 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 can't like you can't be like like if men at this time are reading be like oh well she's just she's just i don't know if they had the term feminist or whatever but she's just trying to like bash on men or like do this this and that it's like well wait a second she made the representative a woman and so you read it, it doesn't really, it doesn't, she kind of couches it as this is not like a men versus women sort of story. It's like, sort of like a new, the new generation versus the old generation, or like the class which had she made it men, mm-hmm. right. Or, or, or perhaps the class, I think she, she couches it as like, this is, this is like everybody's fault kind of. And it, we all need to move on from this rather right. than like taking sides and, yeah, and, and splitting exactly. it down the middle. You see what I'm saying? Which yeah, would totally, alienate people, totally. which yeah, I'm sure exactly. it may have during that time, people, you know, but, but she, she does her best, I think, to make the whole thing like everybody can read this and understand it and see mm-hmm. what we need to do. And it's everybody's yeah. um, sort of struggle to go against these old fashioned ideas. True. You know, and and in the pride in, in the 2005 version, Judy Dench is like a perfect representation yeah, of like this crusty, dusty old, like like woman who just like walks. Like when you hear her voice, I think you hear her voice before you see her, and you're like, oh yeah. my goodness, yeah. it's, it's perfect. <laughs> that scene though, like where she confronts Lizzie and wants to make sure that she didn't marry oh Mr. Darcy, doesn't gosh. marry Mr. Darcy. That's just brilliant. But I just and I love how Lizzie just proclaims like because it, it was true, you know. He's a gentleman. I'm a gentleman's daughter. Therefore, mm-hmm. we are equal. And they were. They yeah. were in the same social class. And what Lady Catherine, which I think is telling of the situation, Lady Catherine, what she comes back with is like, well, who are your mother? Who are your aunts and your uncles? And Lizzie doesn't really yeah. have anything to say to that. And that really is where, if there was a difference between Lizzie and Darcy, where it was. Because Mrs. Ben, like, they didn't have as high of, like, family connections. I think about who Darcy's family was. His mom was the daughter of an earl, basically. He has a cousin who's going to be an Earl. His aunt's like a lady, Lady Catherine, you know? Um, and so Lady Catherine, yeah, she says, who, who are your uncles and your aunts? So like we see that basically it looks like Mr. Bennett was higher cost, but Mrs. Bennett basically married up, right? Like her, like her siblings were in trade and all that. But um, so that would have made their connections a little lower. But it's just crazy because the Binkleys were in trade, but that's how they got money. But they're rich now. And it's crazy how fast people mm-hmm. can forget where they've come from. Because think about how snooty Caroline and the other sister, Louisa, whatever her name is, the other sister were about stuff. And it's like, especially when they're making fun of the, the, the uncle, like that really sweet scene where they, they're talking about, oh, I heard Jane has an uncle who lives in Cheapside. And Mr. Bingley says something like, well, I don't care if they have uncles to fill all of Cheapside. I think that they're very <laughs> agreeable, agreeable, nice young women. And he's like all defending them. But like, we don't know how far removed they were from not having money, but like we at least know that Mr. Bingley is looking for an estate. So they didn't have money at long enough time for his dad to buy an estate, to pass it down. Like he didn't have one. He was looking for one. That's why they're renting Netherfield. So yeah, people just right. forget where they've come from so fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was That's- another thing that I never got. Like yeah. they're, they're renting it. Yes. Or it's like they bought it, but, but, but they don't, they can't like sell it. They have like somebody else gets it later. They can't, I think they what were the, how does that... it. I, I, and I don't think it ever says if they bought it. But, like, you see this happening in other books. Like, for example, in Persuasion, Anne Elliot's family has a really huge estate. But because they're horrible with their money, they have to go and, like, basically lease out their huge home. 
and they're going to go live like in another town and like live in a smaller house, but huh. get the money from rent. But because same thing, the estates until they can't sell it. So I don't know if Netherfield is like that, mm. but um, mm. I don't think it says anything about them selling it. Actually, I think at the very end of the book, we know for sure that they don't buy it because there's like a little comment about how like, Oh, Bingley realized that maybe Netherfield was too close to where Jane's family was. <laughs> Which, fair enough, Bingley. So fair funny. enough. <laughs> Man. Okay, going back to when Lady Catherine shows up and yes. tells Lizzie, you know, that confrontation. I mean, in the movie, it's fantastic. It's also yeah. fantastic uh, in the book. But what strikes me too with Lizzie is Lizzie is so strong to be respectful, but at the same time, also make sure that she is not disrespected. Yes. I think, you know, because the the way that Lady Catherine comes about and I, like in the book, it says afterwards, after she gives all these accusations to Lizzie, Lady Catherine then seems pleased and she says, and will, and will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? And Lizzie just responds with, I will make no promise of the kind. <laughs> My girl. You know, like just simple to the point and then she just says miss bennett i am shocked and astonished (laughs) and i just think you know this character in society who is so up there i don't know it's it's like i don't know it's like if the president walked in and you decided to say something that that would question his judgment right or so in that (laughs) moment she's basically questioning her judgment and also putting her in her place you know respectfully but yeah i just think that shows lizzie's strength yeah, as a character. For sure. That's true. That's true. Okay, I have a question for you guys. This is this is not completely off topic, but I want to know what you think about this. So, and I started thinking about this when we were talking about Mrs. Bennett, right? Because I know we can think of her as being silly, but we talked about her in our mother's episode and our father's episode about how she really was out there trying to do the work that Mr. Bennett probably should have done. And we all we already talked about how Jane is the very sweet daughter all that stuff and remember when mr collins first comes to to longbourn he wants to find a wife right amongst the daughters and first he sees Mm -hmm. jane and mrs bennett tells him oh i feel like i have to tell you my daughter's probably very soon going to be engaged after he doesn't say anything to jane but she just tells him that so that's when he goes to lizzie and remember it's right after the netherfield ball after and so like right around the same time and when bingley leaves jane doesn't think bingley's gonna come back doesn't think he's gonna love her do you because i was trying to think how important was Mrs. Bennett's line to Mr. Collins? Like if she hadn't told him that Mr. Collins would have totally gone after Jane. And do we think that Jane would have accepted him? If it's for the sake of her family and for her, the well-being of like, I think that she probably would have, she's the only person that probably would have pulled the trigger on that for the sake of the people around her. I think she might have, but I think also possibly even if she wasn't, soon to be engaged, uh, Mrs. Bennett wouldn't have tried to, would still have tried to get her to go with Lizzie. Because I think it says some, a few things here and there that like Jane is definitely her favorite. Yeah. And she, mm. and Lizzie's not really, she she's doesn't really care favorite, for Lizzie basically. that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's her least favorite. So I, I think I got the idea when she said that she's not just like hoping for the, for the bigger fish that they're going to mm. catch, but also she was like, oh, I don't, I don't want her to marry Jane. She's my favorite, but Lizzie, you can have her. Yeah. That's how I kind of. Yeah. Dude, that's another thing. It's like both of the parents have their favorites. 
Like Mr. Bennett mm-hmm. loves Lizzie and Jane, and Mrs. Bennett yeah, and I the mean, poor other I girls think, in the house. No, seriously. Well, I will say, even <laughs> though yes, three. Jane's the most beautiful. Does I don't know if it says that Lydia was her favorite, but like Lydia's the one that like obviously they had the most in common right. with. It might have said Lydia. Yeah, it might have said Lydia, but I think it did say some stuff about Jane though that no, she might sure. have yeah, been one Lydia, of her favorites. Doesn't it say something like Lydia reminds her of her like at a younger age, something like Mrs. that? Bennett, yeah, something that like she was her when she was younger. Yeah. So in other words, we see it keep happening. Parents don't have favorites with your kids. None of us are parents here, but we're telling you, do not, do not show favoritism <laughs> with your kids. It's never going to show up. It's never going to turn out well. <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> it's never going to turn out well. We've talked a lot about Mr. Bennett, right? And about how he's in some ways a deadbeat dad, didn't really care about his kids and all that. But at the beginning of the book, we know he goes and he visits Bingley, inter- introduces and mm-hmm. meets them, Right. So do we think in some, did he do it just to be polite? I don't know if I think so, because he's not really, that's not really his thing is to just be polite and be a good neighbor. So do you think, do you think in some way, Mr. Bennett was like, well, my daughters do need to, they do need to find a man. So maybe I'll go ahead and do this and this will help out. Like, do we think he thought that deep into it? Like, I'm, I'm wrestling with that because I'm, I'm not I sure. Know. Well, he's I don't know what cruel. the rule. He, yeah. He's not, but he just seems to not care. So for him to exert himself to go yeah. meet a person he doesn't doesn't yeah. know, and to go start also, the family connection, I I don't know what were the customs of that time. If a neighbor moved in, maybe what was that the custom? It, it I mean it probably was, but the very the fact that like Mrs. Bennett thinks he didn't go do it mm-hmm. makes it. I mean I don't know. It, it's interesting in the nineteen ninety five. Go ahead, Benjamin. I was just going to say, it seems in line with his character if he was just trying to do, like, the bare minimum, maybe. Yeah, it's true. true. (laughs) Just to check the box, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think he's, like, he's not totally, like, cruel and unavailable. And so it's, like, he probably still has some sense of, like, you're saying he was thinking, like, oh, I really should do this. Yeah. It finally, like, he was motivated so heavily in that moment that it it overcame his slothfulness. And he was like, all right, here we go. I'm going to do this. <laughs> yes, I better do it. In the, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, they add just a tiny little scene that's probably no more than 30 seconds. And there's no dialogue to it at all. But it's like after the first, you know, where Mrs. Bennett says, oh, you need to go visit him. And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't care. And then it cuts to a scene of him in his library. And he's going, you can tell he's going over their finances. And he sits and he's looking kind of worried at their finances. And then the mm-hmm. next scene is him, you know, the whole scene with him saying, oh, I wish you wouldn't have told me that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone and visited him. So they almost make it. And again, it's just that isn't in the text, but it was a little like 30 mm-hmm. second scene that Andrew Davies, mm-hmm. the writer of the screenplay, put in there just to show, well, maybe he actually was worried about money. So I don't know. What, what a second. What is, I, I thought I thought when she tells him you need to go visit him, he already has visited Bingley. I, I can't remember that if that's the same scene or not. I don't know if it is because I think it's like it's almost like she keeps pecking at him and pecking at him. In the in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, yes, they put it yeah. in the same scene because they're squishing everything together. Oh, maybe but in that's the novel, I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm not positive okay. if it's the same if it's the same scene. But okay. anyways, I don't know. That I was just curious to get your guys' thoughts yeah, in on the, that. In the 05 version, they really play on the teasing nature of Mr. Bennett. Yeah. Which I do think comes across, you know, and how he says your nerves have been my companion all these years you know, or like whatever. Yeah. I think it's right. just, he's kind of playful, especially teasing her going along yeah. with it. They're more cute. He knows like, that it's say, like going to poke her. Yeah. 
I will say that that's a very kind reading of their relationship. I think in that movie, like it's, it's very mm-hmm. cute. Like you can tell that you can definitely tell there's love between them. It's like almost like this, like rolling their eyes at each other type yeah. of thing, which yeah, in my own head canon, of course, that's the version that I would like there to be because <laughs> of it's happier, but I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if the text necessarily lends to it. In the, in the 95 version, it definitely seems like he just despises her. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you get the idea, you get the idea that they just married for some other reason. There was no love or anything. Whereas the 95, they're more, they seem more, maybe there was love at some time or there still kind of is later. Like there's a little scene in the 95 version, like where they're about to go to bed at the end or something, the two of them. In the, the 2005 and version. And like, what did I say? I thought you may have said 95, maybe not. Sorry, whatever. Sorry, the 2005 at the end. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Where like they're they're the 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 Bennets are about to go to bed and he and says something and then like they do some there's like a romantic caress or something like that that seems like yeah yeah there maybe was still some romance there or something like that yeah yeah um, sure. but I, I'm not you're right I'm not sure which one really is more accurate to the text mm-hmm. that's true I think because it does say I think somebody said yeah I think someone said that I think it does say in the text uh something along along the lines of he didn't marry her for love and there was no love in the relationship. I don't know if somebody mentioned that. But it was more like But I think he, it says something along those lines. Well, it was definitely a Lydia, almost like a Lydia thing that like she had. It said something like he married her for like the good nature, which good looks and like vivality, like, you know, or vivality, whatever, can yeah. can can almost like show that, you know, give the illusion of and then he got then they got married in something like a long time ago all real affection had ended or something like that. Which is which is really or something, yeah, something like that, yeah. And again, talking to, like and Mrs. Bennett, like one thing I, I want to mention too, and it's one of those things where like, since it's this is not written as a historical novel, we we don't get the extra context. But remember when she's all, you know, so upset when Mr. Bennett goes to London and she's like, he's gonna find Wickham and he's gonna fight him and challenge him to a duel and then he's gonna die, and she's all scared about it. Could that mm-hmm. have probably happened? Like, I don't know yes. how common duels were at that time, but if they fought a duel, he very well could have died. You know Wickham's yes. going to be missing if they fight a duel. Evan right? was like, yes, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. And then, like, no, what? it didn't happen. And then, there there guns. <laughs> and then Evan was disappointed from there it's on after. Under- that, I feel like that happened a lot. Because yes, even when did. you talk about, like, the the early 1700s, mid-1700s, like, um, in at least in colonial America, like, duels were so commonplace over yeah. really, really like Dumb stuff. ridiculously small things. Yeah. And most of the time someone would just get like winged or nicked or, and they would move on mm-hmm. and be like, there's the winner. Um, So I, I think yeah. that was, it probably was just as yeah. common. I think absolutely. Alexander Hamilton died in a duel during this time, around this time. Mm-hmm. Good. Exactly. Good. So, well, <laughs> yeah, probably Dinah, the same time for sure. <laughs> Dinah, I was also thinking of in the Poldark books, we see That's that exact, exact scenario take place. And this is set during the same exact time period. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was as an act of honor to keep the honor, mm-hmm. the family honor intact. And so yeah. Mrs. Bennett's concerned that, you know, this is the only option or else they're yeah. going to be ruined. Yeah. Because you can look at it and think, oh, that's but so didn't you, funny sorry. and dumb. But like, that was legit. Like the thing she's worrying about, like, I know she's silly. And so because yeah, they're, we hear they're from real her fears, mouth, we automatically you know? discount it. But yes, they were real fears. Yeah. yeah. But, but don't you also kind of get the sense 
that she wants that to happen. Like she's, she's so romantic and into it. She's like, she, oh, that has to happen because we have to keep the honor. And then when she finds out he's not going to do it, she's kind of like, well, why not? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's kind of, the, that's what I got. Yeah, they're yeah. playing it up more as like, like, like more of a humor bit. Well, maybe she was legitimately right. worried about it. Maybe it was a legitimate yeah. thing, but she was, but there was more of an idea. It probably was not going to happen, but that's the way she was. Like imagine it in her own mind. Right. Oh, she's yeah. such an interesting character. She's hilarious. Like I really enjoyed her yeah. this last time. Well, you guys, we've talked and geeked out over Pride and Prejudice for the last almost hour and a half. So I think we're going to start to transition into our last words. And so for our last words, it can be whatever your your final thought is, whatever you want to say. But I guess what I'm what I'm thinking of, and we've started to touch on this a little bit, is just. Why does this book endure? What is it about this book that makes us keep reading it over 200 years, over 200 years later? So, Jen, I'm going to put the question to you first. What are your last words? Okay, my last words. I'm going to end with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Nice. And I came across this quote, and I completely agree. And he says, I've been reading Pride and Prejudice on and off all my life, and it doesn't wear out a bit. Mm. And I, I feel that same way. I mean, I remember when we were talking about Lord of the Rings and Ben was saying like, I love every like chapter, every mm. word of this. That's how I felt reading Pride and Prejudice again this time around. Like, I just love every word. I love every page. I love the characters. And you're just kind of grinning throughout the stories. It's such a fun story too. Like, it's not just, this story where we learn things, but also it's fun. And especially for something during that time and age. And I just, I'm smiling throughout reading it. And I think the reason why it has transcended time is because of the characters. And I think I talked about this in our classics episode of how she truly was able to capture the psychological nature of people that still today, I can see people in my life who represent these characters, you know, Thankfully, yeah. I don't really know any Wickhams, but or mm. too many Mr. Collins. But you know, you know, every once in a while, you come across one. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I love about it, and it's it's just so relatable in, in reading the story. And I, it will always be a book like C.S. Lewis that I will come back to and read again and again. It's very good. It's hopefully not the Mr. Collinses. You should. We may have to find this this <laughs> meme and put it on our socials. But have you guys seen the meme? And it says like. When you when you've heard when you hear that like your cousin is going to inherit your father's estate and it said the expectation and it's Matthew Crawley yeah. from Downton yes. Abbey, but the reality is Mr. Collins. Well, you know, Dinah, it's funny that you said that because when you're talking about entails and you're talking about yes. Downton Abbey, I was going to say, well, the entail in Downton Abbey was a lot more handsome. Yeah, exactly. And a lot more kind than Mr. Collins. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious, it's so true. Yeah. All right, sorry to derail that, but like, go ahead, Evan, why don't you give us your thought, your last thoughts? <laughs> I think it continues to persist because of the the relationship there and some of the boyish and girlish, like, emotions that play throughout of kind of this, like, blossoming relationship that um the the will the will she won't she will he won't he kind of um feel to it and i think everybody um everybody can relate to those types of uh butterflies and the tension in a new relationship or something like that um and i think that that aspect just it like i said it transcends 
it transcends so much and it's a really there are a lot of aspects of this book that are incredibly fun as you said and there's just not really anything quite like it uh like we have currently i guess it's it's true and sincere in a way that we're like you can only be the original right right (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Well, so maybe your thoughts cha- have changed a little bit, Evan, since the beginning. Do you feel maybe a little bit about better about the book? And I know you didn't hate Again, it. Again, I feel like I was, I feel like I was misrepresented. Um, I mean, okay, but. <laughs> in text. So. Uh... <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, you, you had some positive thoughts towards the end. Well, Evan, you were the one who wrote the words. So. I, know. I don't know how you're misrepresented, thought. but. Everyone's <laughs> a critic. Okay. He slandered himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, for me, it's, I'm probably not going to say anything new, because we've already gone through a lot of stuff and dissected stuff. But I just, I love the growth of Lizzie and Darcy and about the the redemption, you know, like, they, they both had things that they needed to change, both had ways that they needed to grow. And yet they both made those changes, they both became the bitter, the better people looked at the things they needed to change in their lives, like didn't just change because you know, a circumstance forced them to, but sincerely recognized the fact that they were wrong and made changes to do better. And then ended up getting to have this wonderful relationship with each other. And I think Darcy and Elizabeth probably go down in history, probably as one of the most, the famous and best romances. And a lot of that goes to, again, to your point, Benjamin, about that dragon slayer beast tamer, um, metaphor, not even metaphor, but just, um, archetype that that comes up again and and i just i just love their story and anytime you get people growing and the fact where you know there was a second chance they both got a second chance with each other and i think that's so great Mm -hmm. and i think that's always good to be reminded of that i know we're getting this in the context of romance and in a relationship but i think we always need to be reminded that there's a chance of redemption for everyone and we all get second chances in life because of God and because of what Jesus did for us. And so I just love the fact that any, anytime we can get a reminder of a redemption story or a second chance story, I just always love that. So that's it for me. And I'll have you finish it off, Benjamin. Um, I'm, I'm kind of with Evan uh, on this sort of book, which I guess is no surprise is in that <laughs> this is not really my thing either. Yeah. <laughs> this sort of like domestic story. This is not like my, my normal sort of writing, my, or, or uh, reading, uh, writing too, but uh, but reading. I, I usually read things of a bit more of a kinetic nature, mm-hmm. uh, more explosions and more you know fist fights and stuff like that. But more and more lion attacks and things. Uh, but I do believe that everybody should read this book. Mm. You know, and I don't necessarily read it for entertainment. Even though I will say I was laughing a lot when I was reading it this last time with the, the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, but I think everybody should read this book because I think it's it's true and it's good like it is it as we've talked about in the past i think it is accurate to life in so many ways and i think it's on the good side it's saying this is the good thing you should do and this should and i think reading this book can help us morally ethically just how to get along with people in our society and people around us. We have to be able to do that. Not even just in a romantic sense, but we have to be able to get along with people. Right. You know, we have to be able to live peaceably with all men, if at all possible. Right. Like the apostle Paul says. And I think on so many layers, and we've just barely scratched the surface. There's so many different layers we can go through in this book. I think that, that are useful for us. And I, I think that's why I should read it. And I think at the core, that's why it has lasted for so long. 
Well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories. If you enjoyed today's episode and our discussion about Pride and Prejudice, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamppost in the Woods and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our intro and outro music is called Missing Peace, and that was composed and performed by Jacob Koppel. Now, Jen, please tell the good people where they can find us on the social media. If you aren't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Lamppost in the Woods. And when we release these episodes, if you want to share our posts with other people or get it out there on your own social media, that would be awesome. Because we would love it. That, yeah, it would be able to reach more people. And, you know, we're probably biased because we think more people should listen. But <laughs> <laughs> we really, we really do. Um, Love what what we're doing here and believe in the mission of allowing people to read good stories and stories that are true and stories that allow us to become better people. And so we hope you get that from this podcast. And if you feel that way, feel free to share with other people. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, you guys, this was episode three of season three, and we hope very much that you will join us for our next episode Benjamin, give our listeners a little a little taste of what we're talking about next time. We are going to be diving into the topic of guilt as portrayed in literature and writing throughout the throughout the ages. So to do that, we will be uh, focusing on Macbeth. And if you have to ask who that's written by, then I'm glad you're listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> Can you read some more? Macbeth by the great William Shakespeare. And then we're also going to be focusing on the story of Judas Iscariot from the Gospels. So both of those pretty short. Macbeth, one of the shorter Shakespeare plays. Story of Judas, you can read those. Read them and let's come back and let's talk about guilt. It's going to be good. Looking forward to it. Well, listeners, wherever it is that you find yourself on life's journey, we hope and pray that this lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a more hopeful future. We'll see you next time.